Uh, welcome. My name is Adam Doberspike. I'm the president of the Tulsa Lawyers Chapter of the Federalist Society. Uh, with me and one of these grid is Oklahoma City Chapter Co-President and Oklahoma Solicitor General Mithin Mansinghani. Uh, we miss seeing you all in person and we look forward to getting our groups back together in a room later this year, hopefully. But until then, we're making the most of the opportunities uh, presented with these virtual presentations. Uh, the, the other nice lady uh, you see is Oklahoma Senator Julie Daniels. Uh, I'll introduce her in one moment. But first, I want to tell you, if this is the first time you're joining us for a society event, welcome. The Federal Society is a national organization of 40,000 lawyers, law students, scholars, and other individuals interested in the current state of the legal order. Now, the Federalist Society takes no positions on particular legal or public policy questions, but it was founded on the principle that the state exists to preserve freedom, that the separation of government powers is central to our Constitution, and that it's emphatically the province and duty of the judiciary to say what the law is, not what it should be. As always, we want to emphasize that any policy positions taken by our speakers are those reflect those of the speaker alone and not our organization. But today we are very fortunate to be joined by Oklahoma Senate Judiciary Chair Julie Daniels uh, during this first week of our 2021 legislative session. Senator Daniels is a graduate of OU and the University of Tulsa College of Law. She moved to Bartlesville and became an exemplary citizen there, serving on pretty much every nonprofit board, serving on the city council for eight years and serving as mayor of Bartlesville. In 2016, she ran and won a competitive state Senate race for Senate District 29. And by 2020, she had scared off every Democrat and every Republican from even thinking of challenging her and was reelected uh, without uh, needing to face election, showing her formidable electoral power. Uh, with so few Republican attorneys in the Senate, Senator Daniels has unsurprisingly become a leading voice on judicial and legal issues, among others. Beginning in 2019, she has chaired the Senate Judiciary Committee. Thank you, Senator Daniels, for joining us today. Uh, Senator, I Thank just want to turn it over to you, you can to talk about this uh, session that we're uh, starting up this week. Sorry, I, I talked over you, Adam. So you want me to go ahead and kick this off? Is that what I was going to say you could introduce me anytime and thank you for calling me nice. <laughs> Please tell us what we should expect so, this year. What we should expect. Well, uh, first of all, uh, thank you very much for having me here. I feel um, inadequate to the task knowing some of the folks on this call, including I think my long suffering spouse. I will see you later today. I just don't know when. And that's because um, as chairman of the Judiciary Committee and the fact that we had an abbreviated session last year with lots of good policy bills that passed both the House and the Senate, but didn't make it to the floor of the uh, other chamber, we are starting with a record number of bills. And in fact, there are 144 bills assigned to the Senate Judiciary Committee. I have four committee meetings. So um, uh, breaking with tradition, we had a meeting Tuesday morning to plow through the first dozen of the bills. And needless to say, there are many colleagues of mine who will not be describing me as nice by the end of this week when I let them know that unless the earth will stop spinning on its axis, various bills may not be heard. Uh, and I literally am having that sort of conversation. You know, is your so time sensitive? Is, is there something that needs to be done in statute that will um, uh, grease the wheels for something that needs to be done or pre prevent something horrible from happening? 
And then uh, I also want to hear a number of uh, very important, what I would say constituent focused bills that have a lot to do with the national scene. Um, these include limiting, uh, closing places of worship and places of business, government mandates for particular attire like a mask, mandating vaccines or denying people privileges based on whether or not they have been vaccinated with COVID. Um, trying to rein in social media attacks on free speech, and um, even going back to some of the uh, criminal justice issues we faced earlier this year, a bill to prohibit no-knock search warrants. Um, so there are all of those plus a, a host of others, and I'm going to try and get this down to about 15 or 20 bills a meeting, and just as a practical matter, your committee can't stay with you for more than a couple of or two and a half hours, and we do have um, some very bright minds in the minority. The three attorneys uh, in the minority party are on judiciary and they come very well prepared and they ask lots of questions. And so um, we tend to sometimes have long meetings depending on the bill that's being uh, uh, presented. So um, I have a lot of big decisions here to make um, in the next uh, couple of weeks. Just the business, the building in general, because of the COVID protocols, it's not that the public cannot come in the building, but it's much quieter. We don't have groups, we don't have lunches. Um, our Senate hallways are basically off limit unless you have an appointment, although some of the people we work with have sort of standing appointments to come by and use my outer office as a resting place. But it's very business-like this year. Um, there's not the first day of school, what did you do on summer vacation sort of atmosphere or attitude. And I know we had a very, um, critically important health and human services committee meeting yesterday. I am on that committee and we voted uh, on a number of uh, pro-life related bills and we did garner some attention for a particular vote that we took and I'm happy to speak about that and the other bills if you would like to. Um, and we already had an energy committee meeting this morning. So it's, um, you know, we're, it's, all, it's all go. I was here last night and I think four or five of my colleagues on this floor were here yesterday evening because we all have um, an increased volume of work to accomplish this year. Well, thank you for uh, putting all the time in for us. And I, I had forgotten about the backlog from, from last year. Um, I, I do have another question, but I do want to let uh, attendees know, if you want to ask a question of the Senator, you can use the Q&A function that's at the bottom of your Zoom. And that will send the question to uh, Mithin, uh, Senator Daniels and I and we'll try to go through those and prompt Senator Daniels with those. So feel free to go ahead and start uh, sending in questions if you have them. Uh, so Senator Daniels within the Judiciary Committee with uh, your 100 plus bills sitting there, I, I saw at least one has already come out of committee that related to the Judicial Nominating Committee uh, and the Open Meeting Act. Do you wanna talk about that? I believe that was one of your bills. Yes, uh, thank you. I uh, took that bill through committee and through the Senate last year, and then it was on uh, referred to general calendar in the house and like so many bills uh, didn't get heard over there. I changed it slightly this year after learning a little bit more about how the JNC operates. And yes, we want to bring it under the Open Meetings Act, but we recognize that when you have a large pool of candidates, you might want to make an initial cut as it were to determine who your final interviewees are going to be. So we allowed for executive sessions to make that sort of decision and to also review uh, as a committee or with a candidate, 
anything that comes out in a financial disclosure or um, an OSBI investigation, anything of a sensitive private matter like that. But we are asking that the uh, committee uh, meet in public, uh, do their interviews in public and cast their final votes in public. Um, and did get some pushback from my minority colleagues with lots of very good questions. And um, I just wanna see how it goes this year. I think uh, not necessarily because of our courts, but certainly on a national level because of the elections. Um, grassroots individuals are paying attention to the separation of, of powers. And they're looking at what the courts in Pennsylvania did um, to overturn the legislative policy in Pennsylvania. And they're looking at those and they're literally asking questions about, is that happening in Oklahoma? Well, first of all, we have very, very good election laws. And they did um, come under attack this last spring, first um, uh, to our state Supreme Court through a lawsuit uh, put forward by the League of Women Voters, which sadly did go against the legislature, but on a technical argument about the notarization of an absentee ballot versus court documents that are accepted from notarization. But um, seven to two, we were faced with needing to do something with our election laws with the primary election a mere you know, a few weeks away. So we did allow for some relaxation of the um, um, ID requirements in absentee ballot voting. And we got through the primary and the uh, runoff uh, perfectly fine. And uh, going to the polls was not a super spreader event. And then um, the state Democrat party and the national congressional committee, Democrat congressional committee sued in federal court to essentially throw out all of our election laws and happily for the state legislature because I truly did not think we would have a good outcome. And again, mere weeks before the election, which would have caused all sorts of doubt in the integrity of the process. If you voted one way in the primary and the runoff and suddenly the maybe your voter ID rules don't apply anymore. Maybe you're counting ballots um, several days after the election closes, which were all parts of the lawsuit. But happily for us, um, a federal judge appointed by President Obama threw out all of the arguments made by those who sued the state and our election laws were preserved. Most of the people I talked to in Oklahoma have no idea that that happened. They think there ought to be federal election laws so we can't screw it up like Pennsylvania. And I said, but you don't want Speaker Pelosi to impose election laws on Oklahoma. This is where the federal system is so very important. Um, but uh, uh, in, in, in going back to people now paying attention to what the courts do, beginning to ask questions about how justices are appointed. I get a lot of questions. I know you all do too when it comes to retention ballot because no one knows anything about the justices unless they happen to have read Decision. So I think um, the, the premise of asking the JNC to operate under the Open Meetings Act will provide citizens a, a real window into how this very important process takes place because in essence, the um, members of the JNC are the primary electors. There is a primary election for justices in the state and they are the, uh, they are the people who get to cast the vote. So um, that's my argument. I think it will go well on the floor given the Republican majority, but I don't know what sort of hearing it will get in the House. So I hope that helps. That may be more than you wanted. No, that was great. Um, we have our first audience question. It's a good dovetail with, with your answer, which is other than JNC issues, what are your top priorities within the Judiciary Committee? And this doesn't have to be bills that 
necessarily you introduce. It could be bills that you consider a priority that other members have introduced. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I might append to that audience question uh, any bills that you think um, that are your top priorities that, that lawyers should be aware about. Well, just another um, thing on um, judicial reform. Senator Howard's um, authoring two bills that I carried last year that have to do with the Supreme Court calendar and also have to do with um, um, putting more finality on recusals and how those are to take place. So those are very good bills in my opinion. Um, the uh, bill to achieve the final implementation of the Janus decision has just thankfully been reassigned from education to judiciary. That is my bill. And of course, because we're a right to work state, some of the issues um, most prevalent in the situations with uh, public employees in other states don't exist here. But um, it is our intention to make sure that someone who is a member of the OEA is reaffirms each year that they want to continue to have their dues deducted by their employer for those OEA membership dues. And we want an affirmative reauthorization each year so that um, in keeping with the spirit of Janus, the employee is presented with, these are your first amendment rights. If you're happy that um, your first amendment rights are not being violated in any way by any activities of your, um, ed, your association, then re-up. But this does give employees a chance to say, no, I, I think I've changed my mind. And uh, it's really simple and straightforward. And it's just that little piece we think that will help um, employees have the liberty to make that choice and come under the least amount of pressure to make uh, an alternate decision. So that one's important for me. I'm still working on, and there may be a couple of people on this call that I've worked with. I don't know how I inherited the issue of court fines and fees, but it has become something that I'm focused on. And it uh, brings to mind um, how sometimes we can be inconsistent in this job because in working with DAs and the courts and court clerks and defense attorneys and criminal justice reformers, each one has a very good reason for why a certain thing can't happen. A lot of it is tied to money and time. Most of what we do out here is. And so I don't see them as excuses. I see each one of these interest groups having a very specific reason. But because each of their reasons is why something can't be done, it's left to me to decide how hard to push this legislation right now. We're going to achieve some reform, but to achieve reform where we uh, simply don't you know, ever arrest anybody for failure to pay fines and fees um, and fund the court system entirely out of the general revenue fund, which is ideal. Um, I, that's an important bill to me, but I still don't know what that final product will look like. In the meantime, the appropriations chairman, always Johnny on the spot, has a bill to create um, a, uh, here it is, I pulled it, to create a temporary um, commission, Council on Justice System funding, to look at fines and fees, how many are owed, can we improve technology so that defendants and uh, court clerks and courts can look at everything they owe in various judicial districts in the state so we have an idea of their total, uh, their total obligation. Uh, can we do anything to um, look at uh, tracking the distribution of those fines and fees? We know that the list of how those things are allocated is 
with the administrator of the courts. It's not actually in statute. And we have to do something about the some five dozen executive branch functions that we have we fund in whole or in part with fines and fees, which have little or nothing to do with somebody's interaction with the court system. So it is a big problem. However, I will put in one of my, I know federal society members don't take particular opinion, uh, positions, but I do. So um, my opinion on budgeting, we have giant agencies that consume an incredible amount of our budget. We all know that one of those is education and of course, healthcare authority is going to begin to catch up with Medicaid expansion. Uh, it's my opinion that you could make a lot of functions of government whole and you could make them perform even better if you would fund them more fully with the literally small amounts of money. You know, I'm sorry to say it like this, but a few million here, a few million there. And you have some agencies of government that provide critical services, some of which are in the Constitution, who could better perform their duties without taking very much away from the very heavily funded agencies. I haven't gained much traction with that, but I think it would cause a lot less angst during budget hearings if some of these smaller agencies knew that they weren't having to compete every year for crumbs, perhaps, that are left over after larger agencies are funded. Because I think some of these smaller agencies, and I'm not just speaking those touched by the judiciary or public safety, um, they have reformed themselves and they are doing the very best they can with every penny. And sometimes I think we don't reward them by looking at their needs and saying, okay, you've done all you can to help us. Now we're going to help you get to that next step in being able to um, perform your duties. I think I may have got totally off track with that answer. So somebody get me back on it. Okay, well, let's just turn to another uh, attendee question. We had one uh, asking what priorities we should expect on criminal justice reform other than Dom's bill on the no-knock warrants, and I guess other than the fines and fees you already covered, should we expect anything else out of this session? Um, we redid one on resentencing that was a DAC request bill last year, and we passed that out of committee yesterday, which means that um, if your um, if the Court of Criminal Appeals sends send something back for resentencing because of an error, if you waived a jury trial in your original trial, you can't now ask for a jury trial uh, in resentencing. And this was a happy outcome of the, the bill wasn't so much opposed by public defenders, but they actually weighed in wanting a waiver uh, provision for the defendant who, you know, if defense counsel says you can go through this resentencing, but if you waive it, you might be better off to allow them to make that decision. So that was a good one. There are a number on sentencing and criminal procedure, um, several on discovery. I'm afraid that I'm only looking at brief little uh, bullet points on them right now, so I can't, um, I can't expand on that, but there are a number. Some of them will be heard, some will not. And of course, quite a few of those that you might consider criminal justice reform may uh, be assigned to the Public Safety Committee. That makes sense. Um, so, you know, something you mentioned uh, when you first started talking was about um, reforms that were generated by the pandemic, like uh, stuff relating to closing houses of worship and mask mandates and things like that. I was wondering if the legislature is considering any uh, broad reforms to uh, emergency power situations um, based on the, the lessons learned here. You know, it oftentimes appears that the emergency statutes were created for very short-term emergencies, you know, a, 
a flood or a fire that or a tornado that's happening over the course of a day or a week uh, and not necessarily a 14 month long or 18 month long pandemic. Um, and I know there was some interaction between the legislature and the governor on the catastrophic health emergency act and the legislature's need to uh, re-up it or, or not. Um, but are, are there any um, you know, bigger picture reforms that the legislature is considering with respect to emergency powers, uh, either of the governor or of the legislature? Thank you for that question. Not that I know of, but it might very well be that those are in rules. I am a member of the rules committee. The chairman and I haven't discussed. He has some um, five dozen bills assigned to rules, which is usually a committee that gets very few bills unless it gets a bill from leadership that um, we're just gonna hear at the rules committee. Uh, now, I think the Catastrophic Health Emergency Act worked fairly well for us. And I believe in looking at other states uh, looking uh, now, uh, I'm now on the national board of ALEC and in I'm on the civil justice reform, criminal justice reform task force. But in some of those conversations, we're hearing that other states wish they had that kind of act where we had to go into special session, I think to approve it. Um, it, it expired automatically after a certain number of days unless the legislature re-upped it. Um, it seemed to me to be uh, worked fairly well for us. But uh, no, and I'd be happy, I'm, I'm not looking at the chat box, but if I'm given the names of the people who ask those questions, I'll be happy to go and find the answer and get it to you today or tomorrow. Well, that was a me question, but uh, <laughs> we can move no, on to the audience question. Answer. I bet you know again. exactly how bills have been filed on that subject. I don't know, I don't. Uh, although I do have a stack right here of potential bills that fall under my, my role as Solicitor General, and it's too long to read, so I'm going to wait for y'all to call them down first. Um, uh, Adam, do you want to get the next audience question? Sure. Uh, Senator, we have a couple questions seem related that also come out of, I think, some of the uh, recent national events. Do you know if the legislature is doing anything in terms of protecting free speech or reining in uh, big tech abuses? Well, I did speak particularly to a Senator Dom has a bill on social media censorship. And I think it's written in such a way that if you happen to be a large tech company with a footprint in Oklahoma, maybe Northeast Oklahoma, and you're receiving any uh, tax incentives or property tax incentives from the state, and you violate someone's First Amendment rights, you might not be uh, eligible for those benefits anymore. Uh, so I think it's it's kind of targeted in that way. I don't recall any other social media related ones to judiciary. Now, there are several on electronic communication and tracking devices and access to metadata. Um, I think I can see a conflict in several bills in our committee. We passed one yesterday. Uh, Senator Weaver brought it about asking um, communication providers to give their emergency access information to OSBI so that if there is a missing person in danger and they need to locate that person by tracking the phone, that they could get permission uh, from the carrier just in that situation. That gives the carrier some protection too. But we have other bills that are trying to restrict even more when law enforcement can get hold of that information. I think there may be a little conflict there, but uh, that's all I can recall offhand. Again, I'll, I'll dig deeper see if there's more. So this is maybe a bigger picture question, which is um, 
how do the governor's legislative priorities um, interact with the legislature's legislative priorities? I mean, some of us may have seen the state of the state uh, somewhat recently, and that's oftentimes a time when he announces what his legislative priorities are. Um, you know, how does the legislature interact with that? Are, are there particular priorities of the governor that the legislature is wanting to take up or, or not wanting to take up for that matter? Thank you for the question. Sounds like I'm in committee. Um, that's yes. And what's happening this year, I think, was you've got a governor who, like our former president, uh, new to politics. It's very refreshing, has a different way of approaching things. First year, gung-ho, new governor. We did some executive branch reforms to give him some more authority. Then second year, maybe hit a speed bump or two. But what's happened in the interim this time is that, um, uh, as I understand it, I'm not in the meetings, but the speaker, the pro tem, and the governor have had um, at least one very lengthy meeting where they've shared what they think some of the priorities may be of their caucus. Our caucus has an agenda committee. I serve on that committee. We have not rolled it out yet, but we have finalized it. Now, whether or not each one of those shares with the other everything that is on their list, probably not. But where we can dovetail this year, I think there's an attempt to do so. So uh, in the governor's um, uh, state of the state, um, I'll pick out one in particular, uh, something to be done about uh, merit protection reform uh, so that you know um, the, the state as employers can be more flexible in how they deploy their workforce to the changing times, changing responsibilities. That is something I believe all three are in favor of. Now, I can speak a little more um, definitely about the Senate side because I'm in that agenda meeting and I'm also an assistant whip, so I'm on leadership. Can't always speak to exactly what the House would be thinking, but I think this year there is an attempt to find places where they cross and do those together. I do actually know of something very significant. Um, yes, something significant uh, that they all want to do. Um, but that doesn't stop us in our Senate agenda. Our Senate agenda is not going to necessarily reflect everything the governor had in the state of the state. And there certainly is a departure of agreement on the budget. Until Governor Stitt came, the legislature wasn't used to a governor rolling out a budget and having his own budget advisors who might counter what the legislature would say. And so we had a little bit, um, you know, there was a dust up or two. I don't tend to let these things bother me. I think if they're all policy related, um, you know, get past it and move on and don't sour relationships because of that. So this year, I think there's a real attempt to um, try to find common ground wherever you can. I know that the legislative oversight financial loft, can't remember what the T is, that the legislature formed two years ago is going to be very helpful to us in getting very objective uh, data from the agencies for both the House and the Senate, since that's a joint effort. But um, yeah, it all has to do with how much time do you want to put in on relationships. And I believe in the interim, the governor, the speaker, and the pro tem have seen that that's very important and they're doing that. Wonderful. Well, Senator, we got another audience question here, one that I, I expected we might get asked. Uh, how has the McGirt decision influenced uh, this question asked specifically the Judiciary Committee, but even more broadly, do you expect anything out of the legislature uh, related to the McGirt decision? Thank you. I know of no McGirt-related legislation uh, this year. I certainly don't have any. Um, really, I mean, my opinion from being on the governor's um, Commission on Sovereignty and rolling out those, those first principles, basically you know, standing up for the state's position that um, 
we are one Oklahoma and we're going to have to work through this, but the, it, it's in the hands of Congress really to direct what we as a state may or may not be able to do. Um, so I don't see that. Of course, I think it was very wise of Governor Stitt to end his state of the state by speaking of that as sort of an, call it an existential issue if you want to, for both the tribes and the state. And um, uh, it's going to be a long road. Uh, but in terms of what the legislature can do until Congress gives us the authority or the governor authority to do some compacting that then might need to be approved by the legislature, kind of like the um, disagreements got into over tribal gaming compacts and uh, executive authority there. I think we're all waiting to see what the next move might be from the federal government. Um, the next question is about uh, parental choice in education. Is there anything, um, any legislation uh, that you're aware of about school choice um, and issues that, that are related to it? One large issue that um, everyone is talking about, and I think it's going to make its way forward, I believe um, Senator Pugh, the chairman of the Education Committee, is carrying it. And this is the open transfer bill that um, does help uh, the public education sector, uh, allowing students to transfer to any public school, and with some exceptions about, you know, is the school maxed out on enrollment, something like that. I haven't seen the provisions of that bill. And the other one would be not so much choice, but dealing with the ghost student issue, which I was totally unaware of until I got elected, that you had students leave a district, but a district continue to be paid for those students based on the average daily membership uh, and the uh, incoming, the receiving school district not being able to benefit um, for, from the funding for those new students. So that's going to be a big reform um, and I support doing that. Now, outside of, uh, open transfer, I am carrying, again, an expansion of the Lindsay Nicole Henry Scholarship to make it apply to the children of incarcerated parents. Yes, we are broadening the definition of a child with special needs, but given the history of the difficulty of those children, <laughs> compacted by COVID, um, I think it's time to let those families make that decision if they think there's a better choice for their child. I think the Opportunity Scholarship Fund um, legislation has an accelerator on it to raise the cap. Um, I'm not quite sure, my long-suffering spouse knows more than me, I'm not sure who the author is of that bill, but um, those are the two I know of. Uh, I really, I really, I'm not aware of any others. I'm not on education, so I haven't glanced through all those bills. Uh, let's see. Looking at audience questions, got a few here. Got a question about, is there any legislation that would prohibit private parties from engaging in viewpoint discrimination or retaliation, things like uh, cancel culture and doxing that you're aware of? Any legislation to regulate private parties? Or you mean private parties as in individuals or social events? I, I suspect this is uh, focused also on tech, uh, picking and choosing who can use their platforms based on oh, viewpoint discrimination, okay. but it could be not just tech, but anyone mm -hmm. in uh, viewpoints. All right. Well, again, Senator Dom's bill about, um, uh, let's see, which one is it? Electronic data. Um, 
prohibiting censorship activities by certain entities providing for ineligibility for certain tax benefits. Again, that's, I think, aimed mainly at a certain tech company in Oklahoma. So I don't know, maybe they could be going to rules, but there's no such bill been filed in judiciary. And you would think that that's where it would land. Yeah, I wonder if the question was trying to ask uh, maybe a little bit about individuals who engage in that type of behavior online, you know, doxing someone or or trying to cancel someone. I, you know, some people might term it cyberbullying, um, and I think some of those issues kind of intersect. But you know, you talked a little bit about tech companies, and I'm not sure if there's any uh, you know sort of uh, additional issues focused on uh, individual harassment type behavior. Well, and of course, when you start down that road, are you violating their First Amendment rights? You know, you 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 can't pick and choose. Um, but yeah, that's a really that's going to be a really difficult issue to talk about, and it's going to be talked about in every state and at the federal level. At what point do your First Amendment cro rights cross over? Not only um, violate mine and my ability to speak, but actually act as a real threat. Uh, to a person's speech. There's some follow-up with some of the questions that were asked before, um, and I'm not sure I understand the question because I'm, I'm probably not smart and educated enough to understand it, but I'm sure you are. Um, the question is, on the Lindsay Nicole Henry scholarship, wouldn't it be close to the intent of the scholarship if we lower the threshold closer to that of GEER funding, GEER funding, or the Oklahoma Promise Program? I'm not, um, I don't have enough expertise to answer that question. Okay. <laughs> I'm happy to go and research on it, but I, off the top of my head, I, I can't answer it. Okay. But that's good. You shouldn't let your speaker be able to answer everything. Well, Senator Downs, I thought you knew everything, but. Otherwise, otherwise I won't, I, I won't get to enjoy my virtual lunch. <laughs> you've got for me today. Of course. Uh, so, so uh, Senator Daniels, uh, you mentioned before that in the governor's first year, there were some structural reforms uh, to give the governor a bit more power. We have a traditionally weak governor system in Oklahoma. Uh, should we expect any further reforms in that direction? Is the governor pushing anything or the legislature in providing more accountability to the various boards and authorities that make up the executive branch? Um, I think not. Um... But you do bring up a segue into uh, my most important piece of legislation, if you don't mind me mentioning it. But no, I honestly do not know of any more legislation this year to expand executive branch authority, nor do I know of any to rein in executive branch authority. But I do have a bill to hopefully um, make some uh, significant changes to the Administrative Procedures Act. Most people aren't aware that the um, administrative rules issued by uh, the various agencies and commissions and boards in Oklahoma um, make up a great percentage of the regulations and laws that we have to follow. And so legislature is supposed to have oversight of that process. And we haven't, given that we only have a four month session and I, I've told you now how already busy we are this year to, to conduct real significant oversight of administrative rules uh, just doesn't happen in this four month session. And we have to pass an omnibus resolution, which either says we approve the rules or we disapprove this particular one. And to get sets of eyes on all those rules and question whether or not we as a legislature think that they are um, advisable or meritorious, it hasn't been happening. So 
I'm proposing um, a joint committee on administrative rules, House and Senate, to be able to meet during the interim to receive rules from uh, the boards and commissions as they meet, to go ahead and review them and to maybe send them back and say, you know, you might want to amend this one or we really don't like this one. So when we get into session, we're gonna recommend that our colleagues disapprove of it, um, make some changes to the, the emergency rule process and perhaps in the, the executive branch, this may be one step too far for them, but I think it's very important if we're going to um, go back to the legislature actually uh, performing its due diligence is that right now, if the legislature doesn't get this omnibus resolution done, which did actually happen because of COVID, um, and but if they get it done and they they disapprove some rules, those agencies can go to the governor and say, we think they were wrong and the governor can go ahead and approve the rule. I don't think that's correct at all. So we would like to um, uh, get rid of that. And also would like to introduce an expedited rule reform procedure, not as much notice, not as much comment required for certain categories of rules, obsolete rules, or, you know, um, other, other categories, and you know, the feds don't allow this anymore, or we do this differently. We haven't enforced this one in years. Let's just get it off the books and find a way to help the agency start clear, clearing out uh, some of the uh, rules they don't need. So they might actually be able to focus on others and say, you know, that one's really not very good either. And it, um, it beefs up the public's uh, ability to question or ask for communication from the uh, administrative rules section of government and they're, they're getting ready to roll out. It wasn't ready in time, but the um, Office of Administrative Rules, huge IT project to put all of the rulemaking process sort of online, standardize everything, a lot more citizen um, ability to see and in real time comment on rules, which will streamline the whole uh, process. Um, so that's what I know about uh, executive branch reform for this year. So uh, again, another follow-up from, from an audience member. Um, the audience member's impression is that on McGirt, Congress is waiting for the state and the tribes to sort out the issues before Congress acts. And it sounds like the legislature is waiting for Congress to act. So I guess the question is, um, you know, which one's the chicken and which one's the egg uh, as far as what happens first in your view? Mithen, you could probably answer this better than me, but as I understand I'm it, not going to answer that question. If, even if the solution, even if the ideal solution is to have numerous compacts with numerous tribes in various jurisdictions, which I think the patchwork would be not a good solution, um, that authority to enter into those compacts, I believe, must, must be granted by the federal government. So I'm not necessarily saying the federal government's going to go in and legislate a different decision than was made in McGirt or amend the Major Crimes Act of 1885. Uh, but in order for us to proceed as states and try a state and tribes, I think that's what has to happen. So that's what I meant by waiting for the federal government. Uh, Senator Daniels, we, we have a couple others that uh, have follow-ups uh, from past questions. Uh, one of which asks uh, specifically cites that Florida has passed legislation that would fine tech companies for blocking elected officials or candidates from their platform uh, based on the idea that all political speech is protected and that blocking or censoring is uh, uh, one but not another is favoring a candidate. 
Are you aware of anybody in the legislature pursuing similar legislation here? Uh, no, no, I'm not. And again, those bills would either, I think, be in judiciary or rules. So if, if it's, it's possible there's something in rules and I can certainly uh, find out, but I don't, I don't know of anything. And I will also make a comment. I know Alec does a lot of model legislation, Pacific Legal Foundation, Americans Defending Freedom. I think there are various groups out there working on legislation that we might all be able to use as a framework for addressing that issue at the state level. I just haven't talked to anybody myself about that. And, and with some of these questions, I know you've, we've kind of already exhausted the idea of, of what legislation is out there pending, but it, maybe, maybe the question is a little bit about, you know, what would you think of that type of legislation uh, about protecting candidates from being um, political candidates or political office holders from being uh, uh, censored? And, and uh, similarly, uh, what would you think of legislation uh, that says that just like government agencies cannot um, fire somebody for their political beliefs, protecting that and extending that to private employers, not being able to uh, fire somebody for their political beliefs. If you have any opinions, and I don't want to put you on the spot about that type of legislation. No, certainly the latter, I, I would support that. And we're, I mean, it's sad that we're seeing this, um, very sad. And in terms of um, censoring candidates and public officials, yes, but that that same sort of censorship should, um, um, those same sort of restrictions should apply to individuals as well. Um, obviously, if you know, if federal government did dealt with Section 230, a lot of this would be a lot easier at the state level. This is another um, argument for uh, you know the the federal system that we're under is that states can take on these issues and come up with different solutions when the feds don't act. And of course, then you are, uh, you know, a little bit dependent on the courts, on the judicial system upholding what the states do. Um, in point of fact, just to bring up, I, I ran a, a bill yesterday to severely limit um, the uh, prescription of distribution manufacture of abortion, chemical abortion drugs, RU4086 and others, because it looks like the federal government is about to throw the door open to expand chemical abortion in the United States. It's already almost 50% of the abortions performed. And so in order to protect the health of women and the bad outcomes of the use of these drugs, it may be up to the states to do it themselves. And so I passed two bills yesterday out of Health and Human Services. There is a lot of heartburn right now with the uh, Board of Pharmacy because there will be a cost to them to implement this law and I understand that um, time was of the essence to go ahead and I think get it out of committee and, and, and turn it into a live round that we can discuss because we certainly don't want to wait until the end of session and then have uh, the floodgates open and then greatly expand the chemical abortion um, sector of the abortion industry in Oklahoma uh, and that's that is a very real uh, worry right now so I worked with the Susan B. Anthony group and um, Heritage and three or four others uh, quickly rolled out model legislation. And, and in doing so quickly, they couldn't go through and look at exactly how each state handles this issue of regulation. And so we may have put some things in this bill that we're gonna have to um, amend in order to make it fit with um, uh, our physician supervisory board and our pharmacy board. Wonderful. Um, so Senator Daniels, I. I I know last year, or I guess it was two sessions ago, uh, you worked on the 
Supreme Court redistricting bill that uh, passed, and we have our first vacancy with Justice Colbert uh, retiring that will be one of the larger districts, the Congressional District 1. Uh, are there any other uh, bills or processes that are being done to uh, improve the pool of applicants for these appellate positions? Has there been any consideration of raising judicial salary or anything else that helps make sure our best and our brightest end up on these benches? Well, I believe judicial compensation was um, increased last year. Um, and otherwise, I don't know of anything. Now, there's been nothing to, I've seen no bill this year proposing uh, term limits or age limits or changing the six-year uh, retention system. So, no, I haven't, I haven't seen anything like that this year. We have no now, you know, some of, that, some of that could be happening in the House. You know, if you ask me today about a House bill, I will tell you, check back with me mid-March. If it survives the House, then I will, I will read it and have an opinion. But right now, uh, you know, we have our own work to attend to. So there could very well be some uh, bills over there of that nature. Well, it's good to hear our bicameral system is, uh, is uh, keeping to themselves and doing, doing their business uh, independently. Um, we, we don't have any other questions pending right now. So if you do have a question, we still have uh, five, 10 minutes left. Uh, now's the time. Mithin, it sounded like you might have one yourself. Yeah, you know, sticking with, again, what might be of interest to lawyers, you mentioned a bill to implement the Janus decision and you focused in on um, uh, the education sector. Um, it, has there been any thought to uh, what the Janice's decisions impact might be on the legal sector with respect to the Bar Association or what have you. And I, and I think that's maybe still part of active litigation. I, I haven't really been following that case, um, but anything you have, uh, any thoughts on that? Uh, thank you. I haven't followed that in a while. Um, my bill, I don't know that it speaks particularly to education, but I can't quite uh, I don't think it does. Um, sorry, I, I myself have 40 bills, so I haven't uh, committed all of them to memory yet. But I don't know anything about uh, how that particular legislation might affect um, the bar. I can certainly pull it up really fast. But in the meantime, um, other legislation of interest to uh, lawyers, attorneys, my... Um, Former colleague, I didn't serve with him, Brian Crane, who may be on this call, uh, has a bill that um, might be heard in my committee that kind of start a discussion on um, vulnerable adults establishing a private cause of action for um, abuse, neglect, or exploitation of an elderly person and allowing um, family or certain other people with significant relationships to that elderly person to file that action as a way to start to counter elder abuse outside just the criminal justice system. And uh, that bill number, because I promised Mr. Crane that I would um, throw out that bill number so that other attorneys could weigh in on it. Let me see, where did it go? Hello. It is SB 664. So um, as I told, pardon me, former Senator Crane, I said, if you know, um, will the earth stop spinning it on its axis if I don't hear this bill this year? But we really would like to start that conversation 
about um, how to do a better job protecting um, the elderly in Oklahoma. So there is one that all the attorneys should take a look at. Wonderful. Well, Senator, th thank you for spending this time with us. We really appreciate the inside uh, view of what's happening down in Oklahoma City. Those of us up in Tulsa, I know the rest of you, it's just down the road. Uh, and we appreciate you spending time, uh, I know, going through elections and session can be hectic. So thank you for the service you've given to Bartlesville and to the whole state. Um, is there any- I want to say, I want to thank you too. And just say, Adam, just say, one of the most refreshing things about this particular discussion is not one of you asked me about the budget. I spoke a little bit to my opinion on the budget, but nobody asked me about the budget. And I honestly, when I go home to the chamber eggs and issues, it's all gonna be budget, budget, budget. So it's so refreshing to talk about things that um, are something I deal with more day to day than the budget. If lawyers uh, knew anything about money, they wouldn't have become lawyers and they would have gone into finance. Thing. <laughs> you could say that about doctors too. <laughs> Well, thank you for your time. I'm gonna give a couple of announcements for folks on, on the call. Um, th this event did not qualify for CLE. We haven't worked out having virtual events qualify for CLE yet. Our usual in-person ones do. We are working on that for future events. Uh, I did wanna make people aware if they aren't already that there is a Supreme Court vacancy in Congressional District 1, uh, Justice Colbert's retiring applications are due to the JNC on February 26th if you or a loved one are interested. Uh, similarly, a Court of Civil Appeals position, Judge, Judge Thornbrew's uh, seat is also vacant and applications are due February 26th. That's, a, I believe, a Tulsa region uh, COCA position. There are also two Judicial Nominating Committee attorney positions that will be up for election this spring, the one representing Oklahoma City and the one representing Northwest Oklahoma. If that's a type of civic duty you've been called to consider, um, be happy to let you know what the process is for putting your name in the hat for those positions. Uh, I don't believe either our Oklahoma City or Tulsa Lawyers chapter have our next event scheduled. We have opened up a uh, discussion with Governor Stitt's new general counsel and our former Oklahoma City chapter president, Jason Reese, about having him on uh, and talk to uh, not so new district judge, Patrick Wyrick in Western District of Oklahoma about having him on. We're also open to ideas and have had a few given to us of national speakers. The virtual format can sometimes let us perhaps have speakers who wouldn't necessarily fly out and join us, but we might be able to have access to them while we're doing this virtually. So if you have ideas, please let Nathan or I know. Uh, if you're not receiving emails from us uh, about events, please check your spam filter uh, or uh, talk to me or Nathan and we can make sure that you're on the proper uh, distribution list. And if you've enjoyed this event or any of our other events, we always enjoy, urge you to consider joining the Federalist Society. Our membership is in the national organization. You can find information on their website. Uh, in addition to having a discount on our in-person events, there are also a lot of teleforums and other resources that the National Society puts on for its members. Uh, and we would love for you uh, to consider joining. That's how the National Society knows that we're doing good work here in Oklahoma and keeps subsidizing our events. I see Jenny, our National Society staff has uh, shared the link for the uh, join page, the web page, so you can find more information there. Thank you for joining us today, and thank you again, Senator Daniels.